DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents The Letters of St. Therese of Lisieux with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher is a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, a religious community dedicated to retreats and spiritual direction according to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He is featured on several series found on the Eternal Word television network. He is also author of numerous books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, as well as other works focused on aspects of the spiritual life. The Letters of St. Therese of Lisieux with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. So this is May 9th of her final year. She dies September 30th. The symptoms are not yet at their worst. It's tuberculosis. It was tuberculosis that would take her life. We've mentioned earlier, uh, from a very early age, uh, Therese, she had bronchitis every winter. and She uh, had whooping cough very often. For several years, the sisters had already noticed that her voice would get hoarse in the morning and in the evening. Her cousin, Marie, who was the daughter of the pharmacist, and whose letters are very helpful because she has a, a bit of the, uh, the doctor's eye, and she describes more clearly than any of the others the symptoms Therese is undergoing as she's writing to family members and others. They were worried. They could see that something was not right. And a year earlier, on Holy Thursday and Good Friday, she has that the coughing up of blood, which almost incredibly was not taken as seriously as it should have been. Now, Therese herself, to be fair in all of this, Therese herself is, is in part, if we can say this, of a saint to blame because she minimized the symptoms. She hid them as long as she could. In fact, when she had that bleeding, she never said anything to her sister Pauline, who only found out uh, much later, because she didn't want them worrying about herself. Um, and she struggled to keep up with the discipline and the, the daily horarium and so forth of the monastery carry out her tasks, even at times, just even to walk up the steps. She would almost have to stop at each step. She would go through the day with fever and chills. Uh, All of this has been going on, but the symptoms will get to their worst in August, where she has a month of excruciating pain. But the tuberculosis is progressive, and what it's doing is it's eating up the lungs, and it's progressively getting harder and harder for her to breathe. So a book by this bishop whom I mentioned as perhaps the primary scholar of Therese, anything he's written is amply worth reading. He's not a dry academic. He loves her and he writes well about her and with great knowledge. This book is entitled The Passion of Therese of Lisieux, and it's by Bishop Guy Gaucher, G-A-U-C-H-E-R. And in one chapter in this book, he describes the symptoms that Therese undergoes with the uh, tuberculosis. So uh, he entitles this section here uh, from Therese's words, I didn't expect to suffer like this. Oh, some of the remedies that were done, and Therese bore them. She knew they were going to be useless. She's like her mother in this. Zélie never had much faith in the, the remedies the doctors would offer. Of course, medicine was not at its present level at that time. I'll only mention one of them, which is just kind of hard for us to imagine. It was called Pointe de Feu, Points of Fire. 
And what would happen was they thought to increase circulation to help the body, a needle would be heated to uh, where it was red hot and it would be applied to the skin of the person. And Therese had this done several times, up to 500 applications of these needles like this. Now you can imagine the condition in which uh, she would return to her, her room or her, her infirmary, the infirmary. She bore all of these things, you know. It gives a whole new meaning to her expression about the thousand little pinpricks. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. Is, is that a possibility of something that, I mean, in that experience? I mean, it gives it a whole new dimension, doesn't it? Well, it's really hard for us to imagine, you know, the kinds of things that, uh, and, and diet foods that were just very difficult for her to eat and so forth, you know, it was, and some other things, I won't get into all the details, but part of her martyrdom is really the only word for it, was the medical attention, such as it was, that she was given, because she was also left without medical help at times when she desperately needed it. And also, morphine was available to sedate pain, but the superior uh, never allowed it. Now, to be fair to the superior, when she later herself, she died of cancer, a very painful death, uh, she would not use it herself. It was just considered something that nuns would not use. You know, uh, So it was not as though she was simply being cruel to Therese, although in effect it meant that Therese bore excruciating pain with no mitigation at all in these last months of her life. But uh, it was not necessarily out of bad will. There were also other things involved. There was a doctor who was the regular doctor for the Carmel and who was a friend of the superior, a good man. One of his sons was a priest. Um, But when he was away at times, a family doctor that this actually was the husband that her cousin Jean married uh, could have come and helped, but the superior just really didn't, didn't want that. So especially during that month of August when she went through the worst of her pain, uh, she had no medical attention during that time. Can I ask you this? I mean, what were those sisters going through, her blood sisters going through, watching this? Oh, it was terrible. And with this superior that didn't seem to be responsive. I, I... It, it was terrible. And in fact, surreptitiously on a few occasions, they mixed a little morphine into drinks and things. They, they did the best they could. To, to try to help her in that situation. This was Therese of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face, very much. It's her passion. That's the title of this book that we're quoting. So I'm just going to list the symptoms. Now, these symptoms, as I'm, as I'm saying, were not yet at this stage in May when the letter that we're reading was written. But they indicate throughout this time, Therese continued to respond to letters. There was a seminarian, Maurice Bellier, and a very nice book has been written on this by Bishop Patrick Ahern. That's uh, Maurice, Therese and Maurice, The Story of a Love. A seminarian who was really struggling wrote to the Carmel, asked if a sister could pray for him. The prioress asked Therese to do this. So in this last year and a half or so of, of her life, you have this handful of letters that he writes, and then her response. It's always the same. He respites, uh, writes discouraged by his failures. She writes back to encourage him, God is calling you to be a saint. I know it. You can do it. But especially for this, I'll just quote this one instance, because his need was so great. In the midst of these kinds of pains, and with a trembling hand, with the pencil, Therese would write sometimes even lengthy responses to these people. So that's, when you read them on a page, it looks like they're nice, sedate letters. That that was not the case. All right, to describe the symptoms of the tuberculosis, 
So the bishop says, fever and profuse sweating for six months. So that does include this May that we're looking at. Therese suffered from a fever which fluctuated. Sometimes her back was burning like fire. Sometimes she was perspiring so much she became dehydrated. Digestive troubles. Therese suffered frequently from nausea, often losing her meals, even before she became bedridden. The doctor prescribed milk for her. She had never liked it. She could not digest it. She um, continued to take it, forced it down, knowing what would happen. Respiratory troubles as the tuberculosis spread through the lungs. Therese suffered pains first in her right shoulder and arms, then in her left side. The continual cough, emaciation. Strikingly, when you look at the photos of Therese, and this is typical from uh, what I've read about this, her face looks unchanged. Uh, Her face looks healthy in all the photos that you see. And in fact, this was one reason why many of the sisters didn't really believe she was very ill. To look at her, she she seemed fine. So she didn't get a lot of sympathy from many uh, in the Carmel as, uh, as she went through this. But underneath the habit, she was becoming a skeleton. Normally, the face of a person suffering from tuberculosis takes on certain characteristics, but Therese's face remained almost the same. Her voluminous Carmelite habit hid her thinness, and her face was full. Only her thin hands betrayed her, that's all you could see through the habit, and gave the lie to the healthy look. And the emaciation itself caused uh, various afflictions. Weakness, powerlessness, and distress. People suffering from tuberculosis like this, obviously, would have deep emotional uh, discouragement and depression and pain. Did the prodigious remedies customary at the time but ridiculous today do anything to alleviate all this suffering? Basically, uh, the answer to that is no, that they really didn't do much. All right, that's, and of course, add to this that Therese is in the heart of the spiritual darkness at this point, which is centered on this powerful sense in her that heaven is not real, that when we die, everything is over. And she is making more acts of faith, as she'll say, than ever in her life at this point. She writes these lovely poems about eternal life. The sisters comment on it, and she says, I am writing about what I wish to believe. So she is, this is a martyrdom. You know, this is a passion that Therese is going through. And that's the context of this letter that she's writing. So this is the second person, in this case already ordained a priest, that she was asked to accompany spiritually. And it was a father, Adolphe Roulin, who was destined for the missions in China, where he actually spent 13 years. He stopped by the Carmel at one point. Can't say that he and Therese actually saw each other because the grill was in between, although they tried to work it so that Therese was the last one. She was sacristan in the communion line, and uh, they told him that she would be the last one he would see. So he got at least that glimpse of her. And then, of course, after that meeting, uh, went off to China. So the letters that we have reflect that time. He is in China. He has recently arrived there. One of the priests there has been uh, killed by, they were looters. Martyrdom is very much in the air. And so he has written to her about that fact. And, you know, Therese's own love for that, she would have uh, very much desired that herself. So the perspective of the letter is that he may well never return. He may actually be martyred while he's there. So he says, I do not understand, brother, how you seem to doubt your immediate entrance into heaven if the infidels were to take your life. I know one must be very pure to appear before the God of holiness, but I know, too, 
that the Lord is infinitely just. Now, this is why I want to quote this letter. God's justice. All right, God is merciful, but God is also just. I've sinned. You've sinned. We failed the Lord. We're less than we ought to be. God is just. How is God going to look at that? And this is another key piece in this little way, which was her whole approach, which was really pretty revolutionary uh, at the time. I know that the Lord is infinitely just, and it is this justice which frightens so many souls that is the object of my joy and confidence. You know, as I read through her writings and her responses to people, I coined a phrase for myself, uh, Therese's reversals. She will take things that seem clear to us and turn them on their head and show us a deeper truth. All right, we're afraid of God's justice. And her answer is, it's precisely God's justice that gives me joy, that gives me confidence. And she explains, To be just is not only to exercise severity in order to punish the guilty, which is the way we think of justice in this context. It is also to recognize right intentions and to reward virtue. I expect as much from God's justice as from his mercy. It is because he is just that he is, and here's scripture, uh, compassionate and filled with gentleness, slow to punish and abundant in mercy. For he knows our frailty, he remembers that we are dust. This is from Psalm 102. As a father has tenderness for his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. All right, Therese goes on to explain further. This is, brother, what I think of God's justice. That image that she's just given through Psalm 102. My way is all confidence and love. And the next is a sentence that really struck me when I was reading through the letters and that I've gone back to many times. I do not understand souls who fear a friend so tender. Friend capitalized. I do not understand souls who fear a friend so tender. So this is God, a friend, Jesus, a friend, so tender. How, how, can, you, how can you be afraid of him? Think of her only image of God as Father, to amplify this a little bit, was given to her through the love of her own Father, which was a very, very beautiful thing. I do not understand souls who fear a friend so tender. So if any one of us who is part of this conversation listening experiences in him or herself fear of God, please just hear this sentence once more from this woman who loved the Lord so much. I do not understand souls. In other words, I can't relate to God that way because that's not the way God is. I do not understand souls who fear a friend so tender. At times when I've had a sense that I have failed the Lord in this or that or not fully responded or whatever, that sentence will come to mind. And it says so much. At times when I am reading certain spiritual treatises in which perfection is shown through a thousand obstacles. All right, and these were the kinds of books. This was the teaching. This was the understanding of sanctity, a high mountain, an arduous road with many difficulties that very few can hope to climb. That was the image of sanctity. So what Therese says, and that was what was around her in the monastery because that was largely what was in the air pastorally. It, it was sort of the offshoot or the, the vestiges of Jansenism. So Therese says when she reads that kind of book, which presents sanctity that way, in which perfection is shown through a thousand obstacles, 
surrounded by a crowd of illusions, you might fall off the path this way. You may think you're doing what, what, all of this stuff. It's so difficult. It's so hard. My poor little mind quickly tires. I close the learned book that is breaking my head and drying up my heart. And I take up Holy Scripture, which, as we've seen, was especially the Gospels. There, all seems luminous to me. A single word uncovers for my soul infinite horizons. Perfection seems simple to me. I see it sufficient to recognize one's nothingness and to abandon oneself as a child in God's arms. That's the little way. I see it sufficient to recognize one's nothingness. Yes, I really can't do very much spiritually of myself. But not to stop there, to abandon oneself as a child into God's arms. Uh, Let's complete this, then I'll go back over that. Leaving to great souls, to great minds, the beautiful books I cannot understand. This is the doctor of the church. Much less put into practice. I rejoice at being little, since children alone. This is really... This struck me powerfully as I got closer to Therese. What underlies all of this is the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they can't depend on their own strength and turn to God for everything they need with great confidence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The little way is a deep penetration into the truth of that beatitude. And that's what she means by being a child here. As Jesus also says, of course, you know, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for as such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. That's the sense in which he's speaking of being a child. I rejoice at being little, since children alone and those who resemble them will be admitted to the heavenly banquet. That's the verse I just quoted. I am very happy there are many mansions in God's kingdom. John 14, always scripture. For if there were only the one whose description and road seems incomprehensible to me, I would not be able to enter there. Now, let's take the opportunity of this letter to get just a little bit closer to her little way, which is really what's touched there. We'll return to the letters of St. Therese of Lisieux with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts? like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A prayer for the intercession of Venerable Bruno Lanteri. O Father, fountain of all life and holiness, you gave Father Bruno Lanteri great faith in Christ your Son, a lively hope, and an act of love for the salvation of his brethren. You made him a prophet of your word, 
and a witness to your mercy. He had a tender love for Mary, and by his very life he taught fidelity to the church. Father, hear the prayer of your family, and through the intercession of Father Lanteri, grant us the grace for which we now ask. May he be glorified on earth, that we may give you greater praise. We ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to The Letters of St. Therese of the Sioux with Father Timothy Gallagher. Well, let's uh, turn to the story of a soul. And I'm just going to look at a couple of paragraphs but this is the key passage for the little way in the story of a soul. We're in chapter 10. And this is this final part that Therese wrote painfully in those last few months of her life. You know, Mother, so she's writing here to Mother Marie de Gonzague, who is the prioress at this point. You know, Mother, I have always wanted to be a saint. Now, this is where the, the little way starts. The little way is exactly the contrary of lowering the standards. Well, we can't do big things, so we have to be content with little things. It's exactly the contrary. The little way starts with immense desires. You know, Mother, I have always wanted to be a saint. Uh, to love Jesus, you know, she'll say it other times, in a way that no one has ever loved him. To love unto folly. I'll, you know, I wanted to be an apostle, a priest, a martyr, all of these things. The little way starts with great desires. Now, all of us, I think, would readily say, yes, I would like to be a saint. I would really, I would like to be holy. I would like to respond fully to God. It's what happens after we recognize that desire that qualifies whether we move into the little way or whether with a certain sense of unhappiness, we can live with it, but a little unhappiness, well, I guess I'm never really going to get there in my life. It just seems like it's beyond me. Here are these other heroic people, but I don't seem to be able to live that way. So with a little unhappiness, uh, we, we settle for less in some way. Okay, right there at that point, the starting point is the desire, yes, I really would like to be holy, which Therese passionately desired immediately comes the sense of our incapacity. And it's what we do right at that juncture that determines whether we follow the little way or whether we, with a little unhappiness, as I say, accept that things are never going to get there in our lives. You know, Mother, I have always wanted to be a saint. Alas, I have always noticed that when I compare myself to the saints, so same said, think of Teresa of Avila and Augustine and so on, when I compared myself to the saints, there is between them and me the same difference that exists between a mountain whose summit is lost in the clouds and an obscure grain of sand trampled underfoot by passerbys. And we can probably all nod our heads to that. You know, here are these wonderful, heroic people, maybe even some people we've known in our own lives, and we just feel that 
we would love to be to live like that, but we don't seem able. We're, we just have our weaknesses and failings and imperfections that limit us. All right, so what does Therese do with that? She's absolutely our sister in, in, in all of this. Instead of becoming discouraged, this is what I mean, here's the juncture, what do we do with that? Therese refuses to be discouraged. Instead of becoming discouraged, I said to myself, God cannot inspire unrealizable desires. This was very deep for Therese. If I desire to love Jesus this way, if I desire holiness, even all those different vocations that I desire, God would never awaken desires that could not be realized, that could not be put into practice within our hearts. That's just not the way God is. He's too loving to do that. So that if the desire is there, there is a way to its fulfillment. Parenthetically, you know, when she said that she never understood um, eternal life as rest, as long as the world is still pursuing its course, but I want to spend my heaven doing good on earth. Well, is that possible? And uh, her answer was, well, it's this, that God would not awaken desires that could not be realized. And then here's, here's the doctor of the church. She says, look, the angels are in eternal life and they can do good on earth. If they can do it, certainly souls with God can do it as well. But it's just one more illustration of this fact that Therese, it was very clear to her that if, if desires spiritual desires for holiness, whatever, were awakened in our heart, that God would not inspire them without giving us a way to fulfill them. All right then, I desire to be holy, to be a saint. I know I can't do it. I'm too weak. I'm not going to just give in to discouragement. I'm convinced that if God has awakened this desire in me, there is a way to fulfill it. He is also getting, well, what is that way? And this is the search that leads toward what will become the little way. I said to myself, God cannot inspire unrealizable desires. I can then, in spite of my littleness, aspire to holiness. All of us can say that with Therese. We don't have to lower the standard. The door to real sanctity is open to all of us. Otherwise, God would not awaken that desire within us. It is impossible for me to grow up, and so I must bear with myself such as I am with all my imperfections. All of us can nod to that as well. But I want to seek out a means of going to heaven by a little way. So there's the phrase, by a little way. And she uses three adjectives to describe it. A way that is very straight, very short, and totally new. Very straight, very short. It's not this arduous, difficult path strewn with obstacles up to the summit of the inapproachable, uh, inapproachable summit of the mountain uh, with, with the danger of illusions and um, at every step of the way. None of that. This is very straight. She looks for a way that's very straight, very short, and totally new because she finds this nowhere around her in the monastery or in the, the preaching and the teaching that she's hearing. All right. We are now living in an age of inventions. So we're in the, the latter years of the 19th century and uh, trains and steamboats and uh, all of these kinds of things, the Industrial Revolution. And we no longer have to take the trouble of climbing stairs. For in the homes of the rich, an elevator, so there's the famous metaphor of the elevator, has replaced these very successfully. So Therese experienced elevators on the pilgrimage to Rome as they stayed in various hotels, and it was a marvel to her how you could just step in 
and effortlessly find yourself at the top of the stairs. And that remained impressed upon her. And she applies it spiritually now. I wanted to find an elevator which would raise me to Jesus, for I am too small to climb the rough stairway of perfection, as we all are. I searched then in the scriptures. That's always where she says these complicated books, uh, they just tire me. But in the scriptures, immediately there's light. I searched then in the scriptures for some sign of this elevator, the object of my desires. If God has awakened this desire for sanctity in me, and he does not awaken desires that are not capable of fulfillment, there must be, to use the metaphor, an elevator, a little way, straight, short, new. Now, what underlies what follows is that her sister Celine has now, after the death of their father, has entered the Carmel. And when Celine entered, she brought with her some notebooks, in one of which she had copied out a good many passages from the Old Testament. The Geran family, their, their aunt and uncle, had a Bible. And in her own handwriting in the notebook, she had copied out uh, extensive segments of the Old Testament. So we've mentioned Therese had the New Testament, but she didn't have the Old. And so when Celine brought this notebook in for the first time, Therese has a whole new access, at least to some substantial parts of the Old Testament. And she's going through these notebooks, reading the scriptures. And I read these words coming from the mouth of eternal wisdom. This is Proverbs 9.4. Whoever is a little one, and she, uh, those are in capital letters, whoever is a little one, let him come to me. All right, this really speaks to her heart. So I succeeded. I found that I, I had found what I was looking for. Whoever is a little one, not only does that not, with the imperfections and weakness, not only does that not keep you away from God, but it's precisely the little ones that God is inviting to come to him. So her heart thrills with this, but it's not yet complete. But wanting to know, O oh my God, what you would do to the very little one who answered your call, I continued my search, and this is what I discovered. This is Isaiah 66, verses 13 and 12, quoted in that order. And this is what I discovered. As one whom a mother caresses, so will I comfort you. You shall be carried at the breasts, and upon the knees they shall caress you. Ah, never did words more tender and more melodious come to give joy to my soul, because she's found her elevator. The short way, the straight way. The elevator which must raise me to heaven is your arms, O Jesus. That's the elevator. Just come to me like a, like a child and be picked up in my arms and raised. So it's, it's all a very biblical metaphor this, in this case for the power of the Lord's grace to do in us what we cannot do if with great confidence, not only not letting our weakness and imperfections and failures hold us back, I do not understand souls that can fear a friend so tender, she says. Not only not letting those hold us back, but knowing, as the scripture says here, as she reads in Proverbs, it's precisely that littleness that gives us the confidence to, to come to him and be raised up in his arms, the elevator. The elevator which must raise me to heaven is your arms, O Jesus. You know, one of the books on Therese is entitled Everything is Grace, from a word that uh, Therese said, when the question came up of whether she would be able to receive the last anointing or not. In those days, it was given only when death was, was very imminent. And uh, so there was some conversation around her bed as to whether she would receive it or not. And uh, she said, if I receive it, um, 
that will be grace. If I am unable to receive it, it will also be grace. Everything is grace. Um, really, her spirituality is a spirituality of grace. Uh, I can't do it, but you can do it. Your grace can do it in me, and, and you are eager to do it. And all you ask is that I bring to you the poverty of who I am. That's why I say the first beatitude, I think, underlies a lot of this. The elevator which must raise me to heaven is your arms, O Jesus. And for this I have no need to grow up. They become like the, uh, the great saints who can climb the summit and, and so forth. But rather I had to remain little and even become this more and more. You've been listening to The Letters of St. Therese of Lisieux with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with thousands of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Letters of St. Therese. The Letters of St. Therese of Lisieux with Father Timothy Gallagher.